Psalm 16, starting with verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Hello and welcome back to the Book of Judah. Hope you're having a fantastic week. We are almost done with our series in the seven churches of Revelation. This week we're talking about the church of Philadelphia, which many of you know is the uh, means brotherly love. And we'll find out why it was called the city of Philadelphia and uh, the church that was there in it. We're also going to be talking about a misused Bible verse maybe even the queen to all misused Bible verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And uh, this is the part of the letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. And so um, we call them the Philippians, of course. And uh, it's just going to be a lot of information regarding it, but uh, I'm going to be explaining why it's so dangerous to not be knowledgeable of the scripture and to misuse the scripture it's it's dangerous and it puts a lot of puts god on the hook for a lot of things that maybe doesn't go our way so thank you for listening to the book of jude all right let's get started here Uh, we are in chapter three of revelation and we're going to be starting at verse seven this is the message to the church of philadelphia and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. So the general introduction with specific language pertaining to Christ, writing a, telling John the Apostle to write a letter to the angel or elder, head elder, pastor of the church of Philadelphia. This is verse 8 now. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so the church 
of Philadelphia, located hillside about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. The city was founded around 190 BC. The king of Pergamon, he, he had an unusual devotion to his brother, and this is what earned the city its name, Brotherly Love, Philadelphia. The city was an important commercial stop on the major trade route called the Imperial Post Road. So this was a, a mail route, if you will. So although scripture does not mention this church elsewhere, it is probably the fruit of Paul's extended ministry while he was in Ephesus. You can find that in Acts 19.10. Now, Jesus is saying, uh, he who is holy and true. This is a common description in this book. So Christ shares the holy, sinless, pure nature of his Father. We see this in Psalm 16.10. 6.3, Psalm 40.25, 43.15, uh, Mark 1.11 and 24. I'll read John 6.69 to you. We have believed and have come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. And also Acts 3.14 says, But you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask for, for a murderer to be granted to you. Saying Holy and Righteous One pertaining to Jesus as being one with God. That is, he who is absolutely pure and separate from sin. True can refer both to the one who speaks truth and who is genuine or authentic as opposed to being fake. And he says he has the key of David. So Christ has sovereign authority to control entrance into the kingdom. Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So this is the Apostle John writing the words of Christ, and Christ is quoting Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. In Revelation one eighteen, he is pictured holding the keys to death in Hades. So uh, here, he now has the keys to salvation and blessing. So... It's symbolism for having the power and authority over death and hell, over the uh, over salvation and blessing, entrance into the kingdom. And he speaks of an open door. This is either admission into the kingdom or an opportunity for service. And we all know John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The opportunity for service can be found in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And also in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul again is talking about a door being opened to him for service to God. And in Colossians 4.3, Paul again using this terminology, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mysteries of Christ, for which I have also been in prison, and he goes on. So this is all about service to God. Once again, he's speaking of the synagogue of Satan, who says they are Jews and they're lying, and we have covered that. But then, in first verse 10, he says he's going to keep you from the hour of testing. And he says, um, persecution is coming quickly. And once again, he is telling his devoted, his beloved, the true church to hold fast. And that he is in total control. 
he has sovereign authority and uh, he is urging them to not give up and in verse 11 he tells them i am coming quickly jesus is speaking of something coming quickly he's telling these people in this church that persecution is coming just like he has been with the other churches that we see in revelation and he is telling them i am coming quickly now there's a lot of different interpretations on this but when we spoke of last week the day of the lord remember that is judgment language the day of the lord is coming so all of these churches have similar language it's a similar theme that we see thus far and we're after philadelphia we have laodicea and we're done so we're going to see the same theme, and we have been so this is this is the language we're talking about so he who overcomes he's telling them to overcome in verse 12 once again same theme but he says something a little different he says, i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god and he will not go out from it anymore wow so he is uh securing their everlasting life remember he has the keys of david and this is a symbol for salvation and so a, a pillar believers will enjoy an unshakable eternal secure place in the presence of god and he's going to write the name of god so in biblical times when someone writes the name of god or one's name is spoke uh, of his character writing his name on us speaking it speaks to the imprinting his character on us and identifying us as belonging to him and you will uh some some red f some some uh buzzers should be going off in your head writing the name on you know they talked about writing the name and showing that they belong to god where where else have we heard that we see it in the Old Testament, and we see the opposite used in in the New Testament in Revelation, the mark of the beast being written on the forehead or the hand. Well, guess what? The, the name of God, guess where that was written? The This is language that we don't understand. We have to actually do some research to understand it, but the Old Testament Jews, would knew, they would know exactly what Christ is talking about writing writing god's name on that person not not literally not literally writing god on my forehead but putting god's name on your forehead or your uh your hand marking yourselves uh, uh it's a symbol of i belong to god and so this is what jesus is talking about and again as opposed to those who uh deny christ and mark themselves with the what is called what is known as the mark of the beast or you know it's it's basically a denial of christ so um not literally marking yourselves don't go out and get a tattoo of god on your forehead although you i would imagine you could <laughs> uh this is exactly what it's talking about putting his name writing someone's name speaks of the imprinting that person's character on and identifying them as belonging to god I mean, you, you can even fast forward to Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him uh, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. This is the same language. 
all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost in your house. And it's talking about the name of the name of God. Then it shall come when the Lord your God brings you into the land. And so what are they what are they writing? His commandments, his words uh, shall be on your heart, shall teach your generations, your sons, your daughters. It'd be in your house, write them on your hands and your head. And and so this is this is all language they would expect to hear and they absolutely understand. This language, this language, when Jesus showed up and was talking about the new covenant, the new Jerusalem, the new name, this is salvation found through Christ alone. So when we read the Bible, we cannot just come to it with our presuppositions we can't come to it with our you know this is the year 2020 we can't what we understand what we have lived through and what we have our our um what we have witnessed our our experiences in our life thus far we can't just come and read the bible and say well this is what it means to me how does this what does this mean today in 2020 that this has nothing to do with us in 2020 okay this this language has everything to do with this church in Philadelphia. The church who is remaining faithful, Jesus is saying, keep it up, keep my word, a perseverance. And he's telling them that he's speaking the same language that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3. John 3, 5, Jesus says, you must be born of the spirit and water. He was saying that there's an old covenant and there's a new covenant. And there was about 40 years of overlap between the old way and the new way. And Jesus was a part of that new way, of course. And he was preaching a new, uh, a new salvation. And thank God that he opened salvation to uh, graft us Gentiles in to the salvation plan and that's why Jesus uh, preached or taught to Gentiles. Uh, Paul did it. Peter did it. And so uh, we know the new name of salvation is Christ alone, Jesus. And the new Jerusalem, the new city, uh, God's name is written on uh, my head, my hand. Not literally, not physically, but uh, spiritually. And so there's a big difference between the what the old covenant and new covenant and what it it's it was a physical law that you had to physically obey uh and then the new law the new covenant is what spiritual in nature and so this is the same type of language this is you know a lot of people misunderstand this and they try to uh think about um a okay a new city a new jerusalem well look in the bible and you can find the uh comparative language uh look in the old testament you'll find the the people that belong to god you know i'm going to write his his word on my my heart my hand my my head and uh it's all the same language to the same people so if you're if you're an israelite and you lived a long time ago. You you didn't have to do much study. You knew exactly what he was talking about. The only the only problems they had is if 
you know, I'll use Paul, the Apostle Paul as an example of going from being uh, a persecutor of Christians and not accepting Christ, of course, uh, to when Jesus basically met him and made him accept him and, and said, I choose you, Paul. Uh, you were never going to choose me. I, I, I am making this happen. And so uh, Paul's understanding from, uh, you know, bridging that gap between the old covenant and the new covenant. That's the, that's what would have to take place. But from that point forward, that 40 year gap between uh, the old covenant, Jesus coming, the new covenant, the new church, the new Jerusalem. Okay. And so Remember, Revelation is to unveil. It is not, the, the word does not mean keep secret or I'm speaking in code or <laughs> it, it's to unveil. And so these, these churches would get the letter from the Apostle John and read it and say, okay, he's coming quickly. Persecution is coming quickly. We need to remember what we know as a people and we need to be faithful to him until death just like the martyrs, just like Polycarp and Smyrna. Remember, he's going, he, he, I don't know if the right word is happily, but he, he was, he was motivated to die for the name, for Christ's namesake, for the name of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus, the son of God, has the keys to death and hell. And he knows, he knew he uh polycarp knew that jesus has the keys to david to salvation to eternal security he knew that uh his name was written in the lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world do you see all these this these descriptions coming together we know that uh here in this year of 2020 halfway through the year we know i know and i hope you do that no matter what happens to me, no matter if I die at age 40 or if I die at age 80, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. I know that the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, uh, He has all sovereign authority over death and the eter my eternal security, my everlasting life with him in his presence and his name is written on my, whatever you want to say, my heart, my hand, my head, his name is on me and I know it had nothing to do with me. I know there is nothing good in me except that which comes from above. I can boast in nothing, only that Jesus Christ is my salvation. Hey friends, if you enjoy listening to the Book of Jude podcast, share it with your friends and let them know that they can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts for the Android, and many other places. All right, we're back. If Jeremiah 29 11 is the king of all misused verses, then Philippians 4.13 is the queen of all misused verses in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Imagine with me two tennis players preparing to come out for a match. They're in the back, they're preparing, and they're both Christians, they're believers. They both quote 
Philippians 4.13 before they come out for their match. They name it and claim it, if you will. And now you're smart enough to know that one of those players will lose and one of those players will win. The winner will then go back and praise God, but the player that lost might wonder why God didn't allow him to win. Does God not love him as much? The loser must have done something wrong for this declaration not to work. He must not be a tither or not have enough faith. Now these are all silly questions. Do you see how naive it makes us look when we treat God's word like this? It is irresponsible to cherry pick a verse on the basis that it sounds good and claim it as our own for our own personal agenda. When I was in boot camp, we did a lot of ruck marches. We pushed ourselves physically to the limit. Quoting Philippians 4.13 wasn't going to help me any more than my drill sergeants yelling at me to keep moving. It could be motivating, of course. The only strength I needed, though, at the time was physical strength to do a physical activity. We would march anywhere from 4 to 12 miles with 35 to 50 pounds on our back depending on what day it was. Do you think it would have made any difference if I quoted this verse beforehand? Do you think speaking this verse out loud gives it or me any more special powers? Do you think Paul had me in mind when he penned this verse? The answer to all these questions are no. This is the trouble we get ourselves into when we misuse Scripture. What do you think the Apostle Paul meant in this verse? So that's actually the wrong question to ask. It's not about what you think, and it's certainly not about what I think. We need to take the time and investigate what Paul meant when he penned these words. To accomplish this task, we must not only read verse 13. I would invite you to read Philippians chapter 4. We must read the entire book of Philippians for that matter. This is a letter written to Philippi. Now do you see how dangerous it is to read parts of a letter? We must read the letter in context. And again, when we take scripture out of context and try to use the Bible how we see fit, we can easily set ourselves up for defeat. In fact, we can become so delusioned with God that we practically shipwreck our faith because he's not meeting our expectations. God said he would do this, and he's not. Next thing you know, we begin to doubt the Bible's integrity and ultimately God's ability to do what he promises. Because you believe that if I say Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through the Christ who strengthens me, and God doesn't do this. But he said he was going to do this. Do you see the problem we're going into? The New Testament book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. Facing an uncertain future, Paul was not sure whether he would be executed by the Romans, who were widely known for persecuting the church. He felt compelled to write a letter to the first church he started in Greece and which is the region of Macedonia. The church was in the city of Philippi. So we know that much. But more than anything, Paul's letter to the Philippians is meant to be a word of update, encouragement, and exhortation. 
Paul desires to see them grow spiritually and to serve God faithfully without any attachment to the world. He wants them to be unified, experiencing the joy that is found in Christ. In fact, the words joy and rejoice are used no less than 16 times in the book's four chapters. This was obviously something that the Philippians struggled with. They loved the Lord, but had put a lot of confidence in their own ability to, to live out the Christian life. As a result, they were getting worried, agitated, and irritated with each other. Paul's desire was to see the church standing firm in the faith. He urged them to quit, be quick to reconcile strained relationships. Also rejoice in the Lord, refuse to be anxious, pray about everything, and fix their minds on the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. To the very end of the letter, his aim was to encourage them not to worry about their needs. God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. But let's back up. Let's start with Philippians 4.10, and I'll read to verse 12. I will challenge you to read the entire book of Philippians not just chapter 4, but starting Philippians 4, cha uh, chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So yes, Paul received their gift and was profoundly grateful. This is what Paul's talking about uh, in the passage I just read. But he uses this teachable moment to share with them a binding principle that should be the norm for every Christian. No matter what your situation is in life, Learn to be content. Whether we are fed or hungry, rich or poor, and so on, and our ability to be content in the midst of human struggles is due to this one poignant truth. I can do everything through him who, who gives me strength. So this is the real context for this verse. Paul is talking about contentment. It's as if he's saying, I have learned to be content in, 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 in any and every situation because God is the one who is giving me the spiritual strength to be content. God had given him the power not to worry. So here's the application. How might our lives be different if we can tap into the spiritual strength that God provides so that we could quit worrying about our needs and find real and lasting sense of contentment? No doubt we'd worry less and rejoice more. Perhaps a deeper sense of peace would guard our lives. We'd be less irritable, more optimistic, and focused on spiritual matters. And I would even venture to say that even in our times of prayer and worship, it would be much sweeter, much different. What a joy it would be to come to a place in our lives where we knew that we could trust in Christ to provide and rest in His strength for any and all things. To have that kind of spiritual strength would be amazing, monumental, and according to what Paul says, absolutely possible. 
So Philippians 4.13 is not so much about having the strength to stand up and sing a solo in church. It's not really about uh, having the strength to play to the best of our abilities in some sporting contest. This verse is about having the strength to be content when we are facing those moments in life when physical resources are minimal. This is about having faith in the God who provides, the God who is sovereign, in control of everything, the God who sees and knows our needs and has promised to meet them in Christ. Please understand that even Paul, the apostle, had to learn this. Paul told the Corinthian church about the time he was pleading with God to remove something from his life, the thorn that was causing him to be incredibly weak. It was perhaps a physical struggle of some kind, but we really don't know for sure. Either way, something was causing him pain and, the, and he desired relief. But God chose not to change his circumstance. Instead, he gave Paul strength to face his weakness. Paul says, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. This perfectly illustrates the truth Paul was also trying to teach the Philippians. God provides the strength and power to be content when life is not ideal. He gives us the necessary grace to persevere and overcome. For there is something about being weak that gave God's power an opportunity to, put, to be put on display. And in the end, this brought glory to God. And since this was Paul's ultimate goal anyway, to showcase God and bring him glory, he took delight in the grace of God that uh, gave him the spiritual strength to be content. It's tempting to think, when I get a raise, I will settle, I would be settled and secured, or as soon as I get married, I'll be content. Remember, the Apostle Paul didn't have a house, he didn't have a car, he didn't have a big wardrobe or a closet full of shoes. He didn't have degrees on his wall or citations pinned to his chest. He didn't have friends to fellowship with all the time or a wife to comfort him when he was sad. All in all, Paul traveled pretty light. He had few clothes, maybe some writing instruments, a few scrolls of the Bible, some paper to write on, not much more than that. And yet Paul was content. What a lesson for you and me. In this time of financial struggle, in this time of coronavirus, in this time of poverty all around the world, yes, Philippians 4.13 is a very powerful verse, especially when it is rightly understood and rightly applied. Remember, that you can be content and find the physical strength to endure all things because it is Christ who strengthens you. And when we are content to rely upon Him, He is truly glorified because His strength is on display.
Remember always to be content in Christ alone. He alone is your salvation. He has and owns your eternal security. Be content in Him and do not worry about the things of this world. Rely on Christ more. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Go and make disciples. Be a witness for Him. Telling others about the good news, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you once again for listening to the book of Jude. We have one more church in the seven Revelation churches. Laodicea, we'll talk about that next week. Lord willing, we'll have another misused Bible verse. And as always, if you're listening, come over to Facebook, Book of Jude, or at Book of Tim Jude, Facebook or Instagram. Send me a message. And uh, I can't wait to interact with you. Message me if you have any questions, prayer requests. Thank you so much for your support, and as always, may God bless you.